Wow, we're in week 11 of this situation. Can you believe that? We wanna give a shout out to our Northeast Atlanta campuses. They're having a soft opening, making sure that they're complying with the CDC and Georgia Cumberland Conference guidelines. Blessing to you all as you come back together. And I wanna iterate something to the rest of the sites and to our newest site in Portland, Oregon. Crosswalk has never been closed. No churches have. Just because we aren't worshiping in the same room doesn't mean we aren't still together. That's the thing about the body of Christ. Nothing can separate it. Our small groups are growing. Obviously, our online presence has grown exponentially. And it has never been easier to share the gospel with someone by simply liking and sharing. All of our sites have continued their ministries of compassion and mercy through giving to other organizations, volunteering, or continuing to serve the underserved as we do here in Redlands. Now, things look different. Even this room look different, looks different as we, as we disinfect and make it ready when we can come back. But the mission and purpose to love well are still the same. Oh, and by the way, we decided to follow God's lead during this time and plant a church in Portland, Oregon with Patty McCoy. Because, you know, the Spirit never stops moving. You see, we can continue to see the effects of the movement of God that He has seen fit to create through Crosswalk, and we are so blessed. Now, as states and counties and cities reopen, we have continually been asked this question, when can we come back and worship? Of course, each county and state are different, but we have a few principles or filters that are important to us to maintain our anchors through this time. The first is public health and safety. This is a real concern. We don't wanna reopen until we can handle each of our sites with the utmost ability to not be a place where the virus is contracted. Secondly, Crosswalk is not really a social distancing kind of experience. We could open up and put up sneeze guards everywhere and use plastic covering on the seats and only bring back 30% of the people and, and then do a lottery to see who gets tickets to come to the different services. But I'm not sure that's the kind of experience we wanna create. When we come back, particularly on our larger campuses and certainly here at Redlands, we wanna make sure we can mark the occasion with a worship experience that you have come to appreciate, expect, and one that is uniquely crosswalk. Of course, our kids are our priority and they don't do social distancing well at all, as we all know we won't rush back to campus life and hurt our witness to our neighbors and our communities as well. You see, we're gonna honor our community, state, and national leaders, as well as our denominational leaders with a cooperative spirit and a willingness to serve. Resuming on-campus gatherings too soon could do a few adverse things. Number one, it could turn off unchurched people to the goodness of the church and give them a message that we are uncaring and unresponsive to the physical and health needs of our community. Number two, it could turn off those that have reached, that we have reached online and who have connected with us, but will experience crosswalk for the first time when we resume. Imagine walking into church for the first time with all these strange and difficult restrictions and thinking, well, this is just weird. Number three, we risk those of you who are returning to have such a bad experience that you're like, you know what, this is too much, it's too hard, forget it. We don't wanna do it. So we're not going to rush to re-entry into campus life and hurt our witness or hurt the experience. We recognize that our dates for each campus, Southern California, Tennessee, Georgia, Massachusetts, and Oregon will be different. But 
any plans that we make will have to remain fluid as things change each week. So we will remain agile and flexible. If we have learned one thing through this crisis, it's that models and timelines change. Therefore, we're looking at a phased re-entry program into campus life. Now here are the phases. Number one, online engagement. It's what we're in right now. It's never been easier to invite someone to church, like and share, host Facebook parties, all the different ways that you can connect with your friends and neighbors online. Zoom, watch it together, whatever it takes. The second phase will be small gatherings and groups. So as your states and counties kind of wake up, we wanna encourage small groups to gather in living rooms and invite friends and family online to small groups that can meet together. As things open up and we're allowed to gather in small groups, bring people into your home will be the next step. We're currently working to organize our church by regions here in Redlands where people who live close together can get together and get to know one another and even share the service together. To that end, we're finishing up our Lovewell Home Kits and we're looking for people willing to host and a few regional leaders who are interested in organizing your city, county, or region. Number three, this will be when we resume campus life. This is when we are considerably back to normal. And I will tell you, I've seen the requirements of our conference that they're asking of us as we resume and they are no small feats. From cleaning crews, to a different hospitality experience, to working through entrance and exit issues, to the time it takes to disinfect in between services. Now, there may be some of you who are deeply frustrated and wanna come back as soon as a door may open. We understand this and we resonate with it. However, God has continually been on the move and we see an opportunity to regenerate the DNA of our churches and specifically here in Redlands with a deeper connection through our small group experience as we move through phase two and resume campus life in phase three. While so much has changed over the last few months, our appreciation of your support, your willingness to serve, and our great honor to serve you as a pastoral and church staff hasn't changed a bit. It is an honor and privilege to continue to find ways to spread the gospel in these troubled and trying times. We have seen God do amazing things and we have no doubt. In fact, we live in anticipation of the fact that God is going to continue to do amazing things. Of course, you may have questions and we'll try to answer them to the best of our ability. Office at crosswalkvillage.com is a great place to start with an email. That's all I wanted to say on this end. Why don't we pray as we begin? Lord of grace, we're here for you. Open up your word so that we may understand you a little bit better. Amen. We're really looking into some interesting texts today. Now, we won't go through each and every one as of as the text in chapter two have 17 verses and that's a lot for one day. We wanna encourage you to download the series guides as because we had to update it because somebody forgot to write a week and I don't know how I missed it. So just go to www.crosswalkvillage.com slash series guide to re-download and get the full experience of these texts as they are quite a bit complicated, but they are important to walk through slowly. It begins like this in chapter two. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Uh, did your parents ever sit you down to clarify some things with you? Mine did. 
I can remember my dad coming into my room to make sure I understood a few things. Now, this was never a good talking to. It usually meant I was somehow speaking out of turn about something I didn't really know much about or something I had deeply misunderstood. So this is what Paul is doing. He's taking the Thessalonians into the bedroom, sitting them down on the bed and saying, hey, I wanna clarify some things. He's not reprimanding them so much. Rather, he's making sure that they get it because they were getting confused from all the noise that was out there. And, and then he does something brilliant. He tells them that they need to make sure they understand the source of where things come. In verse two, he says, don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had spiritual vision, a revelation or a letter supposedly from us, he's saying vet the source. Their issue was a misunderstanding about the day of the Lord. And I won't go into everything here, but I will say that they were anxious. They were trying to make some sense of why these things were happening. And so they were willing to listen to anyone without checking their sources and without verification. And apparently these teachers were using Paul's name to verify their teaching. And Paul is not interested in that. It also seems that he's a little perturbed. And yeah, I'm gonna use the word perturbed because they were so easily shaken by this other teaching as if they couldn't or wouldn't remember the gospel that he shared with them when he was there. So let me ask you a question today. Are you easily shaken from the gospel? I'm serious. What causes you to forget there was this one focal point to the gospel, that there is one message and there is one protagonist in the whole narrative, and that's Jesus. When you find yourself listening to a teaching that is focusing on numbers or conspiracy or simply bad science, and it creates anxiety in you, it shakes you to your core, that may be a prompting of the Holy Spirit that you, what you are hearing or reading or experiencing might not be gospel because the gospel does a few things for us. The first thing it does is that it calms us. How? Well, by reminding us that we are not the center of the story. These things are not happening to us, but we are experiencing the effects of a broken world and we are all experiencing it together. By recognizing that Jesus has lived through the chaos before and that he came out victorious, we realize that we don't really have all that much to fear. And that realization should make us the most measured, calm, and least prone to being shaken kind of people on the planet. Listen, I dream of a day when Jesus is lifted up on the actions of people who are humble, thoughtful, and work tirelessly for equity, for justice, for compassion, and mercy. I want my Christian brothers and sisters to be as upset by racism, by white supremacy, by violence, by inequality, and by injustice as they are by not being able to worship in the same building and in the way that they have become accustomed. Friends, we will gather together again to be sure, but Ahmad Arbery won't have that opportunity. Listen, many women and children will be hurt or killed by domestic violence through this time, and many more will die of a virus that while statistically makes us feel comfortable that it's not too bad, but those who have suffered through it or lost someone to it recognize the real and present danger of something as simple as not wearing a mask. So we need to allow the gospel to do what it does. It calms us. And secondly, the gospel empowers us to be sources of hope. It empowers us 
to be sources of hope and the Thessalonians forgot this because they were so worried about the process of how things were going to happen. It's hard to be a source of hope when you don't have any. As they were being shaken and stirred up by these other teachers, Paul's arguing for hope for the gospel and for a moment of calm amidst a chaotic storm that they were going through. So he's going to teach them the process of how things will end, not give them the secret to the end of all things, rather to give them the hope of Jesus in the midst of all things ending. And I hope you understand the difference. I hope I understand the difference. So let's jump into verse three. Don't be fooled by what they say, he says. For that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Wow, the man of lawlessness. That sounds like a great movie I would wanna watch. But there's actually four titles that were given to him, that were given to this man. So number one, man of lawlessness. Number two, son of destruction. But there's an implication in that, that not only will he bring destruction as the New Living Translation says, but he will be destroyed. It's right in his name. Number three, the enemy. And number four, the climber. This one's interesting. He'll exalt himself over God. Now, I'm gonna ask this next question in the most California way possible. So I apologize for people watching from all over the world. The question is this, so who is this dude? That's what everyone wants to know. I want to know. You want to know. It's okay, and it's pretty human, and honestly pretty faithful to ask this question. Everyone of faith has. And by the way, the list is super long of those who have been called the man of lawlessness. Also, another term that we've used, and you're probably familiar with this, is the term antichrist. Now, if you grew up in our faith tradition, your chest just went tight when you heard that term, antichrist. All those dreams you had when you were young about being devoured by the devil, about being confused by this anti or false Christ just came up to the surface. We have talked about this before, so I won't take up too much time. But if you are experiencing this, it means that you grew up in a faithful household. Everyone asks the who is this dude question. If you take scripture seriously, you want to know. If you believe that Jesus is coming again, you ask this question. And more to the point, the list is really long. So here are a few names of people who have been called the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. Antiochus Epiphanes has often been a prototype for the Antichrist. As well, Emperor Gaius Caligula, Pompey, Domitian, many of the popes, Luther, political figures throughout the years, Bin Laden has been called him, Obama, and even Trump has been called by this name. Oh, and billionaires. Billionaires throughout modern history have definitely been called this, whether it's Rockefeller, Kennedy, Soros, or Bill Gates. Sometimes, I wonder if Christians have thrown this title around so often that it's lost some of its import, some of its gravity. However, the next texts are interesting, and I'm gonna read them in their entirety and then jump back. Paul says in verse five, don't you remember that I told you all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back for he can be revealed only when his time comes for this lawlessness is already at work secretly and it 
will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Verse eight, and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. I'm not gonna exegete every single word here. It would take too long. But I want you to think about a few things that are said. First of all, something is holding him back. He's already at work in secret. It will remain a secret. So let's break this down. Something is holding him back from being revealed. Now, this could be him. It could be God. No one is 100% sure, and there are a lot of different ideas out there. I'm not going to solve that for you today because we've been discussing this for a really long time in theological circles. Number two, he is already at work. So chaos is already happening in the world because of evil. And because of this lawlessness, the world is crazy. And I don't think this is a huge stretch for us to believe, right? I don't think this is anything new to us. The world has always been a mess, continues to be a mess, and is a bit of a mess right now. But the scripture also tells us that it will remain a secret. And we, apparently, will not be the ones to reveal it. So what does this mean? Well, this means that our searching the internet, seeking to find codes in scripture, and generally being pretty distrustful of people who don't look or believe like us, is not only driving us crazy, but it's futile according to scripture. If you believe what scripture says, then you believe that the revealing of this lawlessness will happen in a way that is out of our hands. But let's look at verse eight again, shall we? Because in verse eight, he breaks it wide open. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Okay, so he will be revealed, but not by us, by something other than us. And in the same sentence, without breath, we see that Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. And I'm gonna say that again. In the same sentence, saying that he will be revealed, without a breath, we see that Jesus will win. He will slay him with the breath of his mouth. And this is so illustrative, isn't it? Especially as we are wearing masks in order to keep our breath away from others. But you know what usually happens when we expel breath out of our mouth? We speak words. And I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus has been called the word, ha-logos. Luke tells us that from the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. He says this in Luke 6, 45. So how do we have victory over evil and chaos in our lives? By speaking Jesus into the world. And I don't care if you sing it. I can tell you the hope I feel when I realize that when this antichrist, whatever and whoever it is, is revealed in the same breath, he will be struck down by our savior. Jesus seems to be in the business of saving. This seems obvious, but it's what he does. Now, when I worked as a lifeguard, there was this one kid, and I won't tell you his name, but I had to save this kid a bunch, multiple times a day every time he came to the pool, and he came to the pool a lot. I, I never had to do like rescue breathing or anything like that on him, but I had to get him out of those little jams that could become devastating if no one was watching. This kid couldn't help himself. He just wanted to be in the danger zones of the pool. He would literally put himself in danger by swimming under the diving boards where the pool was 12 feet deep and he couldn't swim that well. 
One day, after I had him pulled him out for like maybe the third time and told him to sit on the bleachers until the footprint that I had put on the cement had dissipated. Now that was kind of my punishment. I would get my foot wet, put it on the cement. When it finally dissipated, then he could get back in the pool. But before I left, I said, hey man, why don't you just stay where it's safe? You can't swim that well. You clearly need lessons. And you make me have to save you a lot. He looked up at me and he said, well, are you gonna stop? Uh, what? I said. He said it again, are you gonna stop? I said, stop what? He said, saving me. Are you gonna stop saving me? Of course not, I told him, it's my job. He said, then I'm gonna keep swimming. You see, Jesus keeps saving us. He saves us from ourselves. He clearly saves us from the man of lawlessness. He saves us from our temptations and from our worst angels. He saves us from the chaos of this world and he saves us from the end of all things. Jesus saves us. Whether by the destruction of evil, whether by bringing us back to him or by dying on a cross for us, Jesus saves us. Now, you can read these messages and your chest can clench your hands can sweat, and you can begin to look for the man of lawlessness all around, I will tell you, you will find someone or some group or some ideology or event to place that title on. Of course you will. We always have. Or, or, you can read the whole chapter and see that Paul spends more time on the good than the bad, more time on God than the man of lawlessness, more time on encouragement than reprimand. And in verse 13, and I know I've jumped a little bit, but in verse 13, it starts like this. I'm gonna read it to the end. It says, as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. Verse 14, he called you, to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, with all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong, strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. So there's this kind of super gross proverb. It's Proverbs 26, 11. It says this, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. And I know it's gross and some of you are probably eating because we can do that now while we watch church. So I apologize for that text. But did you notice that Paul does not return to his own vomit in this text? He doesn't lean into the sensationalism of trying to name the man of lawlessness like we have done so many times in history. He doesn't even go back to the discussion of evil at the end of the text. Of course, he does give them enough warning to think about for a while. Much of that is included in the text that I didn't read, verses nine through 12. So go back and read them. But he isn't interested in building up your fear. Rather, he is interested in building up your hope. By the way, a hope that comes as a gift from God through his grace in the form of comfort. Now, I can imagine that there are some watching this with a spirit of criticism 
who will say that I did not do this text justice and that I should have explained more and that I should have put the title on certain things that are happening right now around us and that we have a particular understanding through our faith tradition of who this man is. Although, by the way, I have seen that man change over the years as I've been in ministry as well. I get it. I appreciate your concern and your criticism. Strangely, anyone who preaches hope and comfort and the grace of Christ in a crisis is often thought of as being light on scripture. And I find that fascinating. Because you see, I wanna leave you the way Paul does in this text because I can't say it better than he did. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Do you see that all this is coming from God? Grace, comfort, hope, strength, and victory And I have to tell you, I need these things more than I need to know who is the Antichrist today. Those are things that will get us through not just this time, but all time. We talk about the end of the world. We talk about the end of time and we put charts together and we try and figure it out. And I understand why we do that. But when we do that, we forget the point that Paul was consistently trying to make, which is first of all, All of this comes from Jesus. Your grace, your salvation, your hope and your comfort, all of that comes through Jesus. And that is what gives us strength to make it through. We will meet again. We'll be together again. You've heard me say this a bunch of times. Even though we're in week 11, we're gonna be back together. I don't know how long it's gonna take. We will not rush it. We will be thoughtful through it. But I will tell you this, we can make it through together because we are part of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ cannot be separated because the church will not fail and Christ will not fail. So all we're left with is hope. If you wanna spend your time doing the math, that's okay, but the answer has been given. If you wanna do all that work with your charts and figure it out, you can do that, that's fine. Many Christians have. But I'll tell you this, me and my house, what we're gonna do is we're gonna lean into the hope of Jesus. We're gonna lean into the strength and the comfort that he gives us so that we come out of this not only okay, but thriving in our faith, growing in grace. We've already seen this through the Crosswalk Movement as we see us planting a church in Portland right now. And that's not the only conversation we're having, of course not, because God is on the move. You think that he sheltered in place, God is moving and he will continue to move and we're gonna move along with him. So let's focus on those parts of the text that really are the point of the text. Is there a man of lawlessness? Yes. Is there an antichrist? Yes, but he loses whoever he is. He never had a chance. But we, we believe in the God that's won. Not in the God that, ha- that might win, but in the God that has won and will continue to be victorious. May that be a word of comfort, hope, and strength for you today. Let's bow our heads. Lord of grace, power, and mercy. Lord, May we lean into that. May we be those people who thrive during this time, 
Not because we got to come back together and everything's perfect and it's the same as it was. Lord, I don't want it to be the same. I want it to be so much better. I want you to regenerate this church through small groups, through stronger connections, so that when we come and we worship together and we will do that again. But when that happens, Lord, you will have a choir like you have never heard before because we know one another. And that may mean we have to wait until social distancing is done because we have to hold on to one another as we sing your praises. Lord, let us be those people. May we be grace and mercy and hope and comfort and strength to the world because that's what you are to us. In your name I pray, amen.